you do a VBS on Elijah, you're going to have Mont Carmel, you're going to have the whirlwind, but nobody's going to do 1 Kings 19. It is kind of the other side of the great victory. It's when he goes through a season of such despair and such loneliness and depression that it's just kind of like this doesn't fit our image of what a great servant of God is to be, but I thank God he put it there. Because this is reality. This is what happens in real life. We aren't always sing and be happy. We aren't always great. Like we sing, it is well with my soul, but you know that first line, he says, if peace like a river attends my way, I'll sing. If sorrows like sea billows roll, I'll sing. Because life has both of them. And even if you're living for God, a dramatic life where you are living his will, not yours, you will still have seasons of depression and despair. And it's not out of order. It's not a sign that you've done something wrong. It's a sign that all of life matters and you're living and you care about this servant thing. And sometimes you just get out of sorts. And what I want us to see is that God responds so gently. We think of God as this dramatic creator of the earth, speak things into existence and call down fire from him, and he does all that. But much more commonly in our lives in a daily way, God is very gentle with us, and he shows up in kind of some soft ways too. And I want you to see how he does this with Elijah so that we can learn to value this being done with one another. 1 Kings 18 is the story of Mount Carmel. You remember, we acted this out, in, and it's just amazing, and this fire from heaven, and he's killing all the false prophets, and, and, and then, and then he, he gets, sits down, and he prays to God, and after 42 months of no rain, he sees a cloud in the sky. He prays a little more, and, and, and he knows rain is coming, and he says to Ahab, you need to, you need to get in your chariot and go back to Jezreel. And Ahab gets in his chariot and he takes off. But if we were in his chariot with him, what we'd see next would blow our minds. He looks out his door and Elijah is outrunning him. 25 miles, he outruns the chariot back to Jezreel. And I'm wondering a little bit, why are you going back to Jezreel? Why are you going back to where Ahab lives and Jezebel lives? And I think he wants to see the victory parades. I think he wants to hear the chants of the people. We want Yahweh back. We want Yahweh back. Put Yahweh back. No, no, none of that happens. Do you know what's happened in the capital city as a result of this dramatic action of God? Nothing. Nothing's changed. It is so depressing to him after doing all that and going through all that. And it's so dramatic and it's so successful. It's a great high victory. He goes back and nothing has changed. So we go to chapter 19 that was read so well a moment ago. Jezebel hears about it from Ahab and issues an edict, puts a wanted dead or alive poster all over town, and Elijah's the most wanted man in the country, at least by her. 
And, they, and, and Elijah is terrified. It says he's afraid after, serve, after God dramatically responds to his quiet prayer, this one woman gets a loud, obnoxious request for his death, and he's terrified and on the run. And he walks or runs another 50 miles south to Beersheba. And then he dismisses his servant, who is his staff, right? Every prophet of God has a staff, and he dismissed them, and he wanted to be alone. And he goes another day's journey south of there, maybe even not Israelite territory anymore, and he just sits down by a broom tree. And he says, God, I want to die. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. What in the world's happened to him? We're going to have two lists today, and I promise we're not going to take too much time on either one of them, right? I just want to jot these things down. The first list is, what's wrong with Elijah? And the second list is, what does God do in response? I, want, I wish you could put them side by side, but we're just going to have them. What's, what's wrong with Elijah here? Number one, the victory that he won didn't produce quite the results he wanted. You know, you have this envisionment. When I do this, this great thing's going to result. And he did this, and God responded, and yet the results are kind of mediocre. Things that you think you do and the result you're looking for are never quite as high as you wish they were. It just isn't. It, it just doesn't pan out quite like you thought it would. And when it doesn't, it leaves you a little dejected, right? For a church, it's like this. We just... We just paused our lives for two weeks and put on this great VBS and all this amazing stuff we did, and then we tore it all down. We come back to the building, and things are just like they were before, and nothing really changed, obviously. Obviously. You can't see any major change as a result of all those efforts you put in. That can get discouraging. Preachers experience this. On that weird occasion when I do two really good sermons on one Sunday, Sunday night's kind of wiped out. It doesn't happen often, but I mean, it happens. And it's kind of, ex it kind of exhausting. And Sunday night, I'm wiped out. I got nothing left, no words, nothing. I, I, I don't know if you remember this. You go to vacation and you plan out everything and it's so jam-packed full of activity and then you get home and you're just like, oh, it's the letdown. The day after Christmas, all the anticipation, all the gifts, all the expense, all the family coming in, and the next day, you've got the trash to pick up, and life is just like it was before, and it's kind of like, ugh. And that's where Elijah was, when you experience this great thing, but it doesn't quite produce the results you expected. Disney sets us up for this for marriage. Can I tell you, marriage is never quite... It's never quite as happiness ever after as they paint it. There's daily work every day, and it never goes away, and it never gets just totally easy. And that can, that can just affect your emotions. He was afraid. The text even says it. This little old woman comes out with this threat and shaking her fist at him, and he goes terrified. You can be afraid. He was exhausted. He was tired. Y'all, by the end of the time, by the time he gets to this broom tree, and by the way, when he gets to this broom tree, it just sweeps him off his feet. Get that one? They didn't in early service either. So he, by the time he gets there, y'all, he's been, he's run or walked 75 miles without sleep, 
I don't know how much nutrients he got, but he was going on fumes, and he's exhausted. He lays down at that tree, and he's just tired. i got to tell you this for those, all of us, about depression, about medicating yourself, about turning to food, about turning to alcohol or some kind of drug or some kind of pick-me-up thing. There are certain times in your life when, if you'll pay attention to your life, that you are more prone and susceptible to doing that at other times, and you need to pay attention, and you need to know what time it is in your life. And here's four of them. You ready? When you're hungry, when you're angry, when you're lonely and you're tired, you hear this from every facet you can, right? It's called halt. There are other things, right? Dejected, disappointed. What I'm saying to you is when you are in these four things right here, you are so susceptible to an affair, to pornography, to depression, to just just absolute devastation in yourself. And you will turn to anything, the quickest thing you can to medicate yourself in these times right here. So be careful. Pay attention to what's going on in your life because you can offset these just by paying attention. Listen, when you are lonely... And you're reaching for that bag of potato chips, ask yourself something. Do, am I hungry or is this just like, am I just feeding this loneliness? That's where he was. He was exhausted. He was tired. He was alone. Now this one's interesting because he took his servant with him that, all that 50 miles. And then when he gets to the end of it, he dispatches him. Here's the weird thing about your depression. Your depression works against your solution. It just does. It makes you resent the thing that you need the most. And so when you are depressed, you want to get people away from you and go into isolation and be alone. And that's the last thing you need. But you're going to want that. That's the way we do it, right? And so he just, it says he left his servant there in Beersheba, and then he went another day's journey into the wilderness. He made himself isolated and alone. Nothing wrong with alone time. I'm an introvert. It's my kind of thing. But too much of that, even for the introvert, is bad. Listen to what Bonhoeffer says. I love this. Let him who cannot be alone be aware of community. If you're a person, I can't stand being by myself, be careful because the community, you'll go with whatever community is around you, and sometimes it's not a good one. But look at the second line. Let him who's not in community beware of being alone. If you isolate yourself from other people who God sends to you to lift you up, you are putting yourself into deeper despair, intentionally. And that's where he is. The story keeps going, right? And God starts interacting in this story, and he's going to interact in a beautiful way for us. He's not going to do all one thing. A lot of us will say, oh, you're depressed, you need to take a pill. Like, that's the only thing, you, all you have to do is take some kind of medication to lift you up out of it. And listen, there's never one discipline that fixes this. Not just taking a pill will do it. You, you need to talk to a therapist. Yeah, you might need to, but that's not the only thing you need to do. And yes, a person who is in this might need to talk with God and pray or talk it out, but maybe not immediately. And if you're a guy, most likely it's not it. Don't start talking to me and help me examine my feelings in the middle of this. I don't want that. So be careful about picking one discipline and saying this is the solution to this whole thing. God doesn't do that. He, he is very careful with this. But here's the, here's the next thing. He said, I'm, I want to die. I want to die. 
let me die. And God won't. Listen, if you ever in a spot like this, you're ever in a spot where, you know, I'd be better off dead or God let me, would you please do it the way Elijah does it? God is not offended at you expressing that. He's not offended at you feeling that. But please ask for his permission before you proceed. Always ask for God's permission. God let me die. And God not only says no, but he never does let Elijah die, does he? He picks him up on a whirlwind and says, no, I'm not going to let you die. I'm not going to let you do that. But he, he, respects, he respects the fact that Elijah says this to him. And God doesn't overreact. Oh, my. No, no, no. Just go ahead. You, but no, you can't do that. God's not going to give you permission. Please, if you ever feel this way, ask for God's permission first. But I'm no better than my father's. What does that mean? You know, the prophets have never been all that successful among God's people. You remember when he called Isaiah? Isaiah, uh, here am I, Lord, send me. That's dramatic. We stop right there. But God says, listen, I need you to be my spokesman. And when you preach, nobody's going to listen to you. And it's gonna, we're just going to shave the community down. The numbers are going to fall. Isaiah's going to preach faithfully, and it's not going to do much good. I just want you to do it anyway. Elijah was like, I'm going to preach, but I'm going to restore Israel. I'm going to bring them back to greatness. I'm going to lead them back. And you know what? He doesn't, and he thinks that he failed. He evaluated himself on his own standards of success. Here's what God asks of you, church. You be faithful where he put you. But don't take responsibility for what God does, does through you. That's his business, not yours. Do not, I think we got to be very careful, Valley View, that we don't fall to the numbers thing. If we don't have 80 doing something, it's not legit. That's not true. When you have six or seven go to the village to put out flags for something they're doing, they ask you and six or seven show up, that's a win. That's a great thing. And when we have people, this is, you don't even know this is going on. We have people conducting services at one of the nursing homes here. And even Thursday, Tuesday, sorry, at 10 o'clock, they get together again for a singing. And they have 20 or 25 of those folks get together for an old-fashioned singing. And only, there's only a couple of us that do that. It counts! It counts. That's every bit as important as uplift with 80 people. Is that true? Does it have to be huge? Do we have to have a caravan for it to matter? No. If you're one person living a faithful life in your context, that is what God called you to. That's a win. That's Valley View at its best. So be careful with this numbers thing. He was thinking... I failed because they didn't all revive. That's not what God wanted it for. You did what God called you to. Let God take care of the results and quit judging on your own standard of success. Now it's about time for us to begin the second list. What does God do for Elijah? Number one, he lets him sleep. Sleep is a spiritual experience. Did you know that? Everybody says, why don't you make your sermon shorter? Because some of you wouldn't get as much sleep as you need. I'm doing you a service. I'm spiritually blessing your life. 
letting you sleep a little longer. You think I'm joking. No, not really. He lets Elijah, you know, he's exhausted, he's tired, he has, he's just dejected. And you know what he needs? Not another church service, not a prayer time. He needs sleep. We were created to need sleep. You know this, right? God said, you work six days, you rest on the seventh. Is it because God was worn out? No, it's not that God was worn out. He was telling us something. You weren't designed to keep going and going and going and going. You weren't designed to say, well, let me show how strong I am. I don't need to take a rest. I can keep doing it. No, yeah, I, I think you could probably keep doing some of that. But you are going to wear out. And not only that, but while your body may continue going, your mind won't. And your emotions won't be able to handle it. You need rest. Quote with me, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me. He makes you lie down. It doesn't say he lets you or asks you. He makes you lie down on the green grass because he knows you need to. How can you say how weird it is that one of the top ten of the Ten Commandments says, please take a day off and rest? Number four. One of the big ten, if you had ten to pick out, why would rest be one of them? Because God knows how you were created. And you read Psalm 3, I lay down my head at night and I sleep because the Lord sustains me. God, Listen, sleep and rest is a gift from God. Please accept it. Please accept it. So Judy Ramsey comes in this morning, she says, I, I didn't sleep good at all last night. I said, I'll take care of that. I'll take care of that. There was a little snore from her section a minute ago, but somebody put, he lets him sleep. I think it's interesting. I don't know how long it is, but I'll bet you it was a good snooze right here that God put him in. And then he has an angel touch him. On purpose, he says he touched him. The angel of the Lord, which I believe is Jesus here. Jesus, the angel of the Lord, touches him. Not necessary. But there is a thing, we're going to talk about this in a couple weeks. There's a thing called touch deprivation, skin hunger. Look up WebMD. It's a legit thing. People need human touch. I need to know somebody is there. Human, appropriate human touch. So that in the New Testament, how many times are we told, salute or greet one another with a holy kiss? I want you touching each other. When you get together, I want a hug or a handshake. I want you to, to interact with each other in a physical way. That's as much a part of their worship as anything. Greet, salute, kiss one another. I'm not saying you should do that. I'm saying when we get together, there needs to be contact. And then he feeds him. This is not the first time. When we're told the first time, what did God feed him with? What animal did he feed him with? You remember, BBS was just a week ago. Ravens. Then a widow with an unending supply of a flower basket, right? A flower container. Now God just has an angel who bakes him a cake. It's an angel food cake right here in the wilderness. Um, it's probably a pre-Cosby's pre uh, cake if you've ever had their angel food cake it's amazing especially when they put that clear up anyway so here he feeds him he says i want you to eat 
You know, sometimes what you need to do, you, you, uh, the, you know, you do some, you, you're just engaged in a lot of things. Sometimes what you need to do is go out and eat a good meal with some good fresh water. Good meal. You, you, you go on these long trips, you go on these, I, I remember going to church camp all week long, and you know what I want to do on Friday? I just want to go home and have pizza and a Coke. And that's what I need more than anything. And don't talk to a soul, right? He feeds him out there. And here's the other thing. He then lets him do all three of these again. This angel does the same thing. He repeats this. No lectures, no talking, no asking him questions to draw out how he's feeling at the time. He knows Elijah doesn't need to talk right now. All Elijah needs to do is sleep, be touched and know there's somebody there, and be fed. And then verse 8. On the strength of that food, he was able to walk to the mountain of God. 40 days and 40 nights. This is crazy. He, that's a, he made him get exercise. Come on, we're going to meet together. I'm going to take you to a special place. Mountain of God. This is called Horeb. Does anybody know what the other name, not Randy, anybody other than Randy and Wesley know what the other name of Mount Horeb is? Sinai. Where you remember Moses says, God, I'm not going any further until you show me yourself. And so he goes up on the mountain, he hides him, right? And God passes by. Same mountain, he leads Elijah there. I want you to go there and I want you to meet with me. But you're going to have to walk. And so he has to walk and he gets some exercise. And then he speaks with Elijah. What do you call it when you carry on a conversation with God? It's prayer. He engages in prayer with him. Arise and eat, the journey is too great for you. And he rose and he ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. Now we're getting to where we haven't read yet. There he came to a cave and he lodged in it. Maybe the same place where Moses was. That's intriguing to think about. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now you know when God asks you a question, he's not looking for information from you. When Adam sinned, God said, where are you, Adam? He knew, right? Why is he asking him? He wants to draw it out of him. There's something in Elijah that he needs to say to God. And he's mad at God. He's mad at God. And God wants him to say, hey, spit it out. Keeping it inside will turn inside. You know what depression is? It's anger turned inward. And God says, I want it out. I want you to give it to me. I want you to tell me what you're doing here. And I want you to listen to the words of Elijah. And this is, this is God drawing out this stuff. He's the psychologist here. He now gets Elijah talking. There's a time to get the talking, but he does all this other stuff first. He said, here's what Elijah said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel, forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with a sword, and I, even only I, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. His thinking is a little messed up, and he reveals it in his talking. Is all this stuff that he just said true? Is all this stuff true? Is Elijah the only one left? Does Elijah think he's the only one left? If you think you're the only one left, you will feel like what you think. Even if you're wrong, your entire thought is wrong, but if you think 
and really believe this, you will act based on incorrect information and you're wrong. But you'll feel it as, as clearly as if it was true. Here's his thoughts I want you to see on this screen. Number one, I was so zealous for you, God. I acted with full integrity. I did exactly what you wanted me to do. This is what he's saying. It didn't turn out well, which means the fault's yours, God. I'm frustrated you didn't use what I did for greater benefit. I'm angry, God. I'm angry that you didn't do what I expected you to do based on what I did. I am upset with you. Number two, I'm the only one left to stand for God. That's not true. But he thinks it's true, and he feels it keenly, and it makes him feel alone as alone can be. And number three, the people are wanting to kill me. I don't know if this is true or not. Jezebel is, but I don't know that the people are. But he's just magnifying this. He's made this bigger than it should. When your thoughts are inaccurate and wrong and irresponsible, you will act that way. You will act wrong and feel wrong and do wrong. But you know what? God doesn't correct him. Not yet. God just lets him talk. There are times when people say things, you're like, don't. Oh, don't say that about God. Don't worry about that. Let them talk. Let them spew it out. Don't have to correct them. You don't have to tell them why they shouldn't feel that way. Don't do it. Just let them talk. God just lets him talk. And you're like, how dare you say that to God? God wasn't offended. Why should you be? God does not correct him. Neither should you. Let that spew out. Let that come out because it has to. If that anger turned inward that is depression doesn't turn outward, it will stay there and it will rot you from the inside out. So let them say it. So God says, I want you to go out and stand there. I want you to go out and stand on the mountain. And God meets him there. And you know this scene. This is one of those beautiful scenes that I think we can often misunderstand. But he says this. Go and stand in the mountain for the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in that wind. I've never seen a wind like this. I've never seen a wind break rocks. Have you? This is really, really powerful. And God did cause it, but God wasn't using it at the time. God does do this, though, doesn't he? God does dramatically respond like this sometimes, doesn't he? But not this time. That's not the only way God works. We happen to think sometimes the only way God works is in the dramatic. It's not true. He goes on to say, it goes on to say, there was an earthquake. But God wasn't in that earthquake. Does God work through earthquakes? Does anybody think of an earthquake God caused that he used? Sure you can. The cross is one. But there are other ones, but not this one. He says, I, I use earthquakes, but not today, not today. And then the third one, he says, a fire. Has the Lord ever used a fire before? How did he appear to Moses? In a burning bush. So God used fire, but not today, not today. You see, I've got a multiple ways I can work, Elijah. There are different ways I work, and it's not always through the dramatic that you're thinking of. Yeah, you did your good John Wayne on Mount Carmel, and you think, well, look at that, and nothing happened as a result of it. Do you think I'm done? Do you think that's the only way I work? Because God then comes to him in a gentle whisper. 
Elijah heard it. He wrapped his face in a cloak and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there was a voice that came to him and said, what are you doing here? And he asked that question again. And Moses, Moses, Elijah answered with the exact same false information. God works in grand ways, but he works in a million quiet ways, and they're all legit. And he's going to choose which way to work. He meets with Moses, Elijah and reminds him, I'm going to do that. So if I say Moses, you know I mean Elijah. I'll expect you to do that work in your mind. He's going to meet with Elijah. And he's going to say, I can use any of these. And right now I'm using a gentle whistle. I'm being very gentle with you. And I can work that way. And your God can be gentle with you. And we can be gentle with one another. The New Testament is so common about this. Gentleness is one of the fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? It's not the one we give all the press to. And how many times does he tell Titus and, and, and Timothy, seek gentleness. You, you live in a culture where everybody wants the loud and the obnoxious and the big and the performance and the, what draws attention. Value gentleness. He then gives Elijah a job. I want you to notice, the Lord said to him, verse 15, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. Go ahead and go back toward home. When you go through there, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. This is weird. What does God have to do with Syria? He's got Israel, he's got Judah. What does he care about Syria? He puts him back to work. He's got something he's got to be engaged in, things constructive to do. God created us to work, and when we don't, y'all, there are side effects. Listen, culture. Anybody watch it on TV? When you bypass work, you create other elements other than financial ones that affect you. It goes into your mind and messes with you. We need to be working. And so he says, I want you to go back. I want you to anoint this guy. And this is a guy in Syria. What's God got to do with Syria? He's saying to Elijah, I'm working all around the world, not just on Mount Carmel. I'm working all around the world. I'm running the world. And then I want you to anoint another king of Israel. By the way, this is Jehu. And um, a couple of Sunday night, a few Sunday nights ago, I mentioned Jehu, and it's not the same one. And Joel Inman said, oh, it's got a warrant. I've got to correct you. It's not the same one. And he's right. It's just like you get lazy, and you don't look it up, and you're like, same Jehu. It's kind of like saying, hey, at Valley View, Matt's going to lead singing Sunday. Well, that doesn't tell you anything. We've got 13 Matts, and they all lead singing. You've got to be a little more correct than that. This is a different Jehu. You're going to want you to anoint him, and then I want you to anoint Elijah to be your successor. And so you've got, I've got to put you into training, Elisha, and there's still history to go. Uh, Elijah's not done yet. He's got Naboth still, right? And then he's still got a couple other, and, and Ahab and Ahab's sons still to go. He's still got some training of Elisha to do. He's not done yet. God says, I've still got work, and I want you to get to work. And then he does one other thing, and he corrects him. He corrects him. The last word is finally a correction of Elijah. He waits a long time before he takes up issue. I have 7,000 prophets who've not bowed. You are not the only one. Let me correct you. I'm still in charge, not you, Elijah. 
Now here's the thing. I can see Elijah being real resentful of Obadiah. Do you remember Obadiah at the beginning of chapter 18? No one does a VBS on Obadiah. Nobody does a VBS on Obadiah. All he's doing is sneaking food and cheese to a bunch of 7,000 prophets hidden in a cave somewhere. How headlining is that? How boring is that? I'm just hiding a bunch of people and feeding them, and then I'm going to Ahab's court, and I'm representing God. I'm the one representing God, and I'm not listened to, and I'm ignored, but I'm doing my job what God called me to. And Elijah's sitting here going, well, I'm the only one standing for God. No, you're not. There are others doing their jobs too. And while it's not near as dramatic and it's not in front of people preaching, there are people doing great things incognito and quietly, and they're doing the will of God just as surely as you are. Don't you dare discount these people. You're not the only one. He got a little attitude adjustment right here, but he waited till the end. He didn't correct him too early. I love that about God. He corrects him when he's ready. Elijah's put back to work. Still amazing stories, as I said, that are going to come with him. We could do another VBS on just Elijah and some of the stuff he does, but I'm thankful we have this chapter. It's real-life stuff. You're a servant of God, and you want to serve God, but you're interested in it, and it's become part of your whole life. Our entire lives are part of this service, and sometimes, y'all, we get out of kilter. And sometimes our, our hopes and our dreams and our, and our goals are disappointed, and we, 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 make, we put promises into the mouth of God he never made, and then we feel frustrated that he didn't keep them. We do this all the time, and he doesn't act the way we think he should, and he's not near as quick to act as we wish he was, and he should, he should respond faster, and he should make our fruit grow quicker, and all this stuff, and it doesn't, and we all feel about this. We have feelings about this, but we have an amazing, gracious, gentle God who understands our humanity, and he comes to us gently. And may we also come to each other gently as we gather here there are people taking care of their parents and they're exhausted we have some with parents at the hospice house we have some who are just working like crazy to make ends meet there are people who are trying to run their kids here and there trying to provide for them a summer that's great and it's exhausting them they need gentleness from us and may we be like God and be gentle if there's anyone who needs to respond this morning God gently pleads with you let him be your God and may you serve him and if that's a call you're subject to make it known now as we stand and as we sing